Hey listeners, we're starting something new and exciting. If you've been enjoying our show, be sure to sign up for our new monthly newsletter. Visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com to sign up for our newsletter today. Thanks for listening. episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho, and this week is our last episode of the season. Oh my god, (laughs) I can't believe it. I know, I can't believe it either. Um, Yeah, so we just had an incredible year of spectacular wonderful awesome guests on the show and we want to look back at just to highlight um just a few i mean if we had the time we would highlight just all of them right yeah oh my gosh it was such a good season <laughs> it was such a good season yeah um but we just want to look at uh just a few this year sam how do you feel i was just i was just thinking about how like we're two now we're the age of an obnoxious adorable toddler that like can <laughs> run around <laughs> bumping into things and yeah uh, getting into things we should not be allowed to and <laughs> yeah fake crying isn't that like a really important developmental stage where you just pretend to cry in order to get attention I'm pretty mm. sure we're at that age yeah at that age yeah that's that's very accurate um <laughs> I love how you just see the years of uh, through a child. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, <laughs> you're two. We're terrible twos. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it can only get better from here. Well, let's start in with um, one of our. I mean, there. I'm just going to say this right now. They were all amazing, but one of one of the many amazing guests we had um, this year, who we thought we would like to highlight, was Reginald Edmund. Uh, He's a playwright, co-founder, and managing curating producer of Black Lives, Black Words International Project. And um, one of the reasons we wanted to highlight this interview was that he shared with us a very memorable story of how he got into playwriting. In this story, he reads for a play and believes he can do it better, so he attempts to write his own. And here's what he says. Uh, The lady who ran the theater she pulled me aside and uh, she said, one, uh, don't ever talk about someone's work in that way, shape or form, right? Don't ever do that. Um, Because people have put their time and their effort and their heart inside of this play. Mm. Uh, Two, uh, this artist is paying for my, to use my facility. So you will not, uh, you know, do this next thing, disrespect in my in her space uh so i was like all right i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) but i could write better i could write better right and so she said all right well if you think you can you can do that well then you go home and you write and you prove it so me being this hot-headed um kid who didn't know any freaking better uh i go home 
And I write this play about this uh, guy who goes to college chasing after this girl. Right. <laughs> your first play, you write, you write what you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think maybe like a week or two weeks later, I came back with this, this I, I want to say it was like 40, 50 pages long script. And I said, boom, and I slammed it on her desk. And I was like, there you go. I wrote it, right? And so she said, all right, well, now you're going to uh, produce it, direct it, uh, cast it, handle wow. uh, lighting, uh, design it, market it, the whole gamut, right? And so she threw me to the fire. Uh, the play was called A Love Story. And um, of course. <laughs> and uh, wow. And it sold out. It, it, it was like a crazy little hit. Uh, in the city of Houston, Texas, right? Uh, uh, I went to people's, uh, I went to, I marketed it. So I went to parades. I went to like all these different parties and events and club events. And I was like handing out flyers and putting it on cars and and um, telling people, uh, people would be like, so what is this, like a Tyler Perry play? And I'd be like, no, it's better. You should watch it, <laughs> right? And uh, <laughs> uh. Uh-huh. And, and we sold out every every night. We would sell out, and there'd be some people that would come back, and they would bring their friends. And I think, really, uh, looking at the play, it was awful. The play was really, really bad. But I think people came and uh, watched it because it was like, man, you gotta see this play is so bad, right? I think it was like, <laughs> the room. you know, I think it was like the room where everybody was like. You have to see just how bad this play is. And so finally she was like, all right, so what's your next play? And I was like, oh, I don't know, but let me come up with something. That's such a funny story. I know. I love it so much. <laughs> I think what I love about this story is just his first play, he just produces it. He yeah. like He puts it up on his feet and like brings people, uh, goes out there to tell people about this play and uh, sells out um, by just going out there and marketing and doing everything and and really now who he is what he's doing now with Black Lives Black Words uh, International Project is that he is producer he writes he does everything um, yeah. so it's kind of funny to like this is like your origin the origin story of where you started and I love that he was inspired to do it because he thought he could do better you know just this idea of like being dissatisfied with the available work and thinking um I have something to say you know and I can mm -hmm. I think I can do just as good if not better than this other artist has done so I'm just gonna do it mm -hmm. I love that yeah <laughs> oh is this a Tyler Perry play no it's funny <laughs> it's so funny um all right so our next segment, uh, a clip that we want to share is another guest. Uh, been on our show a couple of times now. Um, it's Tanuja Jagernath. Uh, she is uh, an Indo-Caribbean playwright, dramaturg, and ceramic artist who believes in the necessity of creation during times of destruction. I just love that. Um, so we talked with Tanuja to discuss her work organizing the response of Chicago theaters to the Black Lives matter movement uh the coronavirus pandemic and the role theaters should have um you guys this was a very tumultuous year 
for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, when Sam, she texted me and when she's saying, look, when she was listening for these audio, she's like, man, we, we sound so depressed. Yeah. And just um, exhausted. I mean, it was exhausted. just a really exhausting time early in the pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, and I think and police brutality and racism was brought to the forefront in yeah. the news. And um, it was just a really tumultuous time Mm -hmm. yeah so here's what Tanuja says what is the role of theater artists (laughs) in responding to like you know you know moments uh, you know of societal upheaval and transformation like because because I I heard you say that theaters are responding right now they're really reacting um uh, which is different from you know kind of leading the larger population Uh so like I mean what do you think theaters should be doing um yeah so I really do I think we need to ask right what are we trying to do here you know what are we really trying to do are we as a as an industry or just as an art form right are we trying to uphold the status quo and the way things are um are we trying to help us imagine the world as it could be and help, you know, prefigure the world we want to live in, right? Um, Are we trying to hold elected officials accountable? Are we trying to um, empower audiences um, or not empower them? People already have power. We We don't have to give people power, but like, are we trying to remind people of their power, right? So what are we really trying to do? Um, you know, I'm not sure that the answer to that question is going to be the same for the Goodman as it is going to be for a storefront theater. Um, but for me, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking at Chicago as a whole, I'm just going to say, like, look at the conditions around you. Um, look at the conditions we're living in. We are in a country poorly managing a pandemic. We actually could probably have kicked it by now. Um, if we had addressed it in the way we should have. We have a racist, fascist, violent head of state. Um, So within that, you know, while we see um, communities of color being targeted, um, people being deported, children being detained and locked up, um, people are losing their loved ones and family members because we do not have a, a system of healthcare that really truly serves everybody. Uh, people's water is being shut off because they can't afford it. And people like Lori Lightfoot won't turn people's water back on, you know, um, these are the conditions and more. Hmm. So given the conditions, what, are we positioned to be able to do, right? What are the resources we have access to? Um, And this is why I was quite excited about the hashtag open your lobby, because I really saw it as, you know, um, an opportunity for people to lean into practicing mutual aid and say like, hey, here are the resources we've got. We've got a space that is inactive and we've got a mailing list. Um, What can we do, Right. right? Um, to whom can we offer these great resources? Um, what organizers can we offer these resources to so they can we can amplify their work, we can amplify their campaigns? Because, you know, I think that's, for me, 
Um, you know, people have been talking, you know, wow, about resist fascism, defund the police, um, promote prison abolition for decades. So I'm just kind of like theater, get on board. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that since uh, we talked with Tanuja, like there has been any changes with the theater communities or? Um, I don't know. It's really hard to know because yeah. so many theaters aren't producing work right now. You know, yeah. it, it kind of feels like in April and May, a lot of organizations and a lot of, you know, white people in general were like, we need to have conversations about race. Like we need to really do the work and talk about racism. And I think what Tunisia is getting at is like, okay, well, the, the work, the, the work ha- comes in the doing, not in the talking, you know, it's like, it, it it's the changes you're making to the, um, the season and the structures within the organization and the mm-hmm. work that you're making. And like, nobody's making work right now because of COVID. I mean, people are doing digital seasons and um, finding ways to develop new plays. That's all happening. But I do feel like it's kind of hard to know what the landscape will look like mm-hmm. once we can all go back to the theater. I mean, I, I'm worried that a lot of bigger theaters are going to be very cautious and conservative, not like Republican, but conservative in terms of playing it safe. Um, You know, as misguided as that might be to try to bring back subscribers and like, you know, make enough money to stay solvent. So. Also to probably avoid any scrutiny. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I just, I, it's just so hard to know. I mean, do, I don't, what do you think? Do you feel like theaters have made a change in general? Um, I, you know, I just feel like they come in waves. Yeah. <laughs> you, you see one theater, like, we're doing this, and we're going to do this, and we're continuing to do this, and then, and then all these other theaters echoing the same note, <laughs> and then, uh, and then everyone just quiets down again because we're still in a pandemic and realizing that you could only do so much. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I don't know. Um, but you know, once we're all vaccinated, uh, that's where I feel like I'm. That's where I'm gonna keep my eyes open. Um, of. Mm-hmm. The moves that the theaters are gonna make. I think it's gonna be April. That's my prediction. My totally non-scientific <laughs> prediction of when we're all gonna be vaccinated. I mean, I'm just basing this on what Dr. Fauci has said, which is <laughs> he said by April, people who want the vaccine should be able to get it. So come April, um, theaters will just be opening doors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on, come on, come on. See a play. You get a play. You get a play. (laughs) So we'll see about that. Oh my gosh. It's going to be so weird to sit next to strangers again and like have like the side of your body touch the side of a stranger's body. Yeah. I I do this thing where every time I'm watching a show or uh, they're all like sharing a bag of chips. I'm like, that's disgusting. I know, I know. I'm like, what? That's not right. Um, yeah, it's gonna. I think it's gonna take for me to just. It's like take some time. 
Well, so listeners, you should definitely go back and listen to that interview with Tanusha if you haven't already, because I think mm-hmm. she has such important insights and, and we've interviewed her twice. So you should go listen to both of them. So the next clip we pulled is from Paul Michael Thompson. He's an actor, playwright, and co-artistic director of the Story Theater in Chicago. He is one of my favorite people. He has so much to say about playwriting and what it means to be an artist, um, theater in general. And in this segment, he shares his advice for new and emerging writers on playwriting. So then I imagine you read a lot of applications, you encounter a lot of, you know, aspiring or emerging playwrights what Mm -hmm. advice would you give to our listeners who might be just kind of setting out on that journey yeah okay I have two and actually the second is probably informed by the first um the first is that I think in the arts community because we are such an open communicative, loving, compassionate community, which I'm obsessed with. And like, I only want to live my life in a, you know, compassionate, positive, open way. I think sometimes we are afraid to have opinions or taste because we don't want to offend anyone. And I think one of the best things you can do as a young artist is actually like, start to craft what your taste is. Mm. I think there should be plays that you read that you say, this is not a good play. (laughs) I think you should go see shows and find what you like. And also equally important, find what you don't like. Mm -hmm. Because I think that being opinionated can sometimes get a bad rap, but it's the only way to make choices. You know, I, the, the number one thing that you can come into an audition room with as an actor or when you're starting a new play is your point of view. And if your point of view is neutral and that just like anything goes, it's just not going to be a very interesting work in my opinion. So so not being afraid to have opinion while also recognizing that like your opinion is probably informed by your identity and your experience and that it's not the only right opinion, you know, that there are, are different strokes for different folks and that there's not one right way to do things. But, but that doesn't mean that you still shouldn't have, you know, your, your own taste um, and things that you, you like and don't like, which brings me to the second point, which is that, I get really frustrated when I read scripts that are so well-written, have amazing characters, great plot, but they're not plays. They're Netflix series. You know, there's there's nothing about them that makes them theatrical. There's Mm. nothing about them that makes me say, I have to sit in a theater with other human beings and watch this play. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. I love we're just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think this interview um really made me think about um I don't know how to say this. Like my mantra of the year of theater is just like, is this theatrical? Like, is this theatrical? Mm. I find myself um when I'm writing something now or something, I'm just like, I keep thinking if if like how can I make this more theatrical, like more you know, just 
hyperactive in a way that's good that you want to see bodies on stage you know just go and um but yeah this was a very fun interview paul michael was just so fun to talk to so as you're saying the word theatrical i'm remembering that um i recently found one of my papers from grad school with feedback and i'd written about a moment being theatrical and our professor responded and he was like what does this word even mean I, and I think he was basically saying, like, I was being lazy and just saying theatrical and not kind of digging into what that really means. So what do you, like, if somebody wants their play to be more theatrical, mm-hmm. Sarah Cho, how can they do that? Yeah. Well, for me, I find myself, like, here's the stage and we know all the elements that go into on to the stage right from the design lights to the spectacle and then the actors uh Mm -hmm. the space and I just think about like well how do I use all of those elements Mm. at once if possible like how do I um yeah is this scene able to just use up every of those elements like on props or I don't know just whatever and and I feel like if it only like checks up one box and I'm like, maybe how do I challenge myself to think a little bit bigger about the scene and using all yeah. the elements? You're, so you're saying that and I'm thinking of Bally Turk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like oh, that yeah. kind of really did use all of the elements of the theater. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. so physical. Yeah, physical. Yeah. Because that that's the advantage, right? When of the theater that, other forms medium that you can't do you can't um mm-hmm. uh, I also love what he um said about taste you know that's something that yes. you and like absorbing and reading and and just taking as much as you can figuring out what you like and you don't like I feel like it's always going to be an ongoing thing because you know our taste changes and um things that used to interest us maybe don't interest us anymore we're asking different questions um, as writers. So yeah, but that's, I, I kind of agree that I just, you should try to just absorb and as much as you can. Yeah. And it's just so important to have opinions. I think a lot of the students I've worked with over the past few years are afraid to have opinions and Mm. I don't know what that is. Um, I don't know why they're so afraid to strongly like and dislike things, but they are. Social media. You think? Are they oh, afraid yeah. of being canceled for disliking the wrong thing? I mean, I I, I mean, one of the things I've noticed were of um, younger students or younger kids just like posting something and deleting it. Like they just post it and then whatever, depending on how fe- the feedback the post got and then just delete it afterwards. Like if you look at their pages, it's only like three photos, four photos. Because they, they can't. They this might be too strong, but they they have a hard time handling like yeah, posting I, something that isn't popular. Maybe could be, I feel like it's a combination like that. I feel like that's the core. But people could argue say, oh well, you know, they don't like the comparison, or they don't like, or they could also um, maybe they learn from like the elder millennials, and they're like, oh look at them, <laughs> like they're getting canceled. Yeah, so I'm I'm sure wanna, I don't want I don't want this post to come back at me in twenty years from now. Um, 
but yeah. I, just, I mean, I just, when I think about all the dumb things I said and did, I mean, I didn't do a lot of dumb things, but I think I, I said a lot of dumb things uh-huh. when I was like a teenager. And just yeah. the thought of that still being permanently online, that's, mm-hmm. I, I understand why that would be stressful. Mm-hmm. Yet they all want to be YouTube stars. I think I YouTube I is a, a career. Is that what you want to be, Sarah? <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> when YouTube first came out, like I was actually like actually serious about it because I, I was remember. making I was making stuff a lot and I was starting to get like a little bit of following. But this is when like YouTube just just started. And I was like making stuff and I was yeah. I, I just loved videos and video editing, which inspired me to go into film school. But like I just liked it a lot. That's something I just did on the weekends in my neighbor in my neighborhood. Just get all the kids and we just record something, and it was fun yeah. to do. And so, what changed about that for you? Um, I guess in some ways it didn't change because you know I started it just always come back to me in a way in a different way. Like mm-hmm. I was like making sketch videos, which is mm-hmm. with my teams and stuff. So. But I think, um, realistically, I was like, "That's you can't do a career out of this." <laughs> yeah, it's like an yeah. Uh, you grew can't up. get like sponsors and like get billions of dollars to um, show your life, your private life. That's like <laughs> crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, you grow up. Uh, you glow up is what they oh my god <laughs> all right so our next guest the uh that we want to share um from this year is marina j bergenstock uh, she is a director dramaturg performer and educator she holds an mfa in directing from university of iowa where we met her uh she formerly was on faculty at beloit college in wisconsin and she started her PhD studies at Stanford University in theater and performance studies this year. And yeah, like a few weeks before. A few weeks, yeah. <laughs> um, so in this clip, she shares her thoughts on our favorite question. We love to ask all our guests uh, the million-dollar question. Like, what does it mean to be an artist in the 21st century? And here's what she says. How would you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century or this century (laughs) (laughs) Um, currently or as of now? But um, yeah, based on everything you just said, it'd be kind of interesting to sum it up here. What does it mean to be an artist? Mm -hmm. I have a rule, which is you're not a definition. You're a work in progress. Ooh. Marina, you're so, Marina, you're so quotable. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but so it's a rule that I like to. Um, I'm sure someone else said it first. Like I, I'm not the first person to have to have had this thought. Just claim um, it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but in my marriage, it's something that we like to to say and and to try to live by. Um, but as an artist, I think, and as an educator too, right? Like every day we are a slightly different person than we were before. And sometimes that requires us to really stop and sort of reshape our worldview and to reshape what being an artist means. Right now, Mm. I've always felt like art is tied to the political so much. Mm. And 
that's because of my personality and because of the way that I view the world. But I think that being an artist is political and what we choose to focus on. Um, it doesn't mean that all artists have to, you know, go canvas or do things like that for the vote. But I think finding why you're doing what you're doing and know that because it's always been done like that isn't a good enough answer and really finding your own personal why. So as an artist, you're a work in progress. You're always asking why, and not Mm. just of yourself, but of the world, asking why is this the work that we're making right now? Is this the work the world needs? Um, That's great. Yeah. I feel like there's there's more to another fat in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I wish that I had a, more of an answer at the end. I Well, maybe maybe one way to think about it is, um, do you feel differently about being an artist now than you did, say, 10 years ago? And, like, how has the, I don't know, national and or global climate um, influenced the way you think about being an artist? Mm. That's a great way to help me. Thank you. (laughs) I think 10 years ago, I felt like I was playing by someone else's book and like I had Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. um, because part of, I don't know, um, maybe the way that I was taught in school, but I felt like I had to be a really good student. And as a professor, right, I love students that are are there following the, the rule book, but there was so much of an emphasis on following the rule book that I didn't start creating my own rule book until maybe a little later than I wanted to. And so I've learned to not follow what other people want for art. And that the more that I see of the world, not just through travel, but the more that I see like reflected in history, the more that I relearn Ooh. the things that I was only taught partially <laughs> before, um, that's now what I want my art to reflect. And so I think we're in a really big moment um, in the United States and then also globally where it feels like the art that I grew up really liking isn't what I turn to in the same way because my needs as a person have changed Mm -hmm. because our world has changed. And Mm -hmm. I always want to make work that I need because I think other people will need it too. I love it. Marina's so thoughtful. (laughs) she is she really is um after listening to that it made me think what what is my rule book like what does it look like Mm. what's your rule book sam i don't have rules (laughs) i don't know that's Um, a good question maybe i should really think of some rules mm -hmm. and i i mean i feel like that's such a good question as a starting point if you have to write your artistic statement or something yeah so like that's just to think a bit more about like what it is that you're writing and what what inspires you and um yeah I don't know I but I feel like I'm such a contrarian that like as soon as I say to myself oh I'm gonna I have to do something this way or this is my philosophy then I immediately think of exceptions or reasons I don't want to do it that way so you just never write your artistic <laughs> statement no I do write them but like honestly I've changed my artistic statements so many times because yeah. <laughs> I just can't um decide yeah. yeah I'm constantly just sitting and 
I don't think I have like um, what do you call it? Like the art, not artistic statement, but the uh, well, I guess it is artistic statement. But your whatever art mantra thing. I don't know what you would call that. Oh, like your a manifesto. Manifesto. Yeah. Like I was like, I just think about it like how I don't think I have one or I wrote one ever. I think we wrote them in our first year at Iowa in that, um, what was that class? There was a class that was like introduction to graduate studies or something. And we had to say what, if we were going to start a theater company, what the Uh kind of philosophy or mission of the theater company would be. Do you remember what I said? I don't (laughs) I don't even remember what I said. (laughs) I feel like every assignment I just like didn't take it so seriously. So that was before we ever went through an Iowa winter. I think we were different people. (laughs) Yeah. After you go through an Iowa winter, I love Marina. She was that was a really great interview. So but what would be in your rule book? Oh gosh. Well that 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 was the question. I was like, what would be in it? Um And, you know, the thing that she said I really um, I connected with was for a long time, I, I felt like I was playing by somebody else's rules. Mm. And then you're figuring out later on, like, oh, I don't need to follow that. <laughs> just, yeah. I mean, like, I think that moment came to me maybe like, you know, actually, Sam, I feel like you were the one of the first people. You're like, yeah, you're right. You're a contrarian. It was like when we're in those, <laughs> you, you were just like, no, I don't want to do that. Let's break. Let's break the rules. What what rules? Well, you you were the first person <laughs> I ever met because up until that point, I feel like other classes or teachers or something they were all telling me certain things, and I just because I see everyone else following the same thing, you mm. know, what their teachers said, and we're like constantly following. But I feel like you were the first person I ever met where you're just like going. Why everyone's going this direction? You're just going the opposite direction, <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, well. I don't know. See, what's gonna, over here if I go this way? I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to follow Sam because <laughs> she just seems to be so confident. So, <laughs> well, I guess that's my rule is break the rules. Break the rules. I think so. Um, but I feel like it was, oh my God, this is, this is okay. And I'm just like sidetracking here. But before you, I was, I, I, I don't know if you remember, but I was always buying water bottles. Oh just, yeah, like just like disposable, disposable. Bottle yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, I am. and I, I was going to the machine. Did I shame you? Yeah, you shamed me. <laughs> you, you were, you were like, oh, you know, water oh, is free, God. and you could, <laughs> if you just buy a, you know, um, a, a reusable water bottle, uh, you could get water for free. And I was just like. I, and, you know, I'm from California, right? Everyone thinks, like, California is this, like, liberal self, you know, uh, environmentally cautious place or something. I don't know. Whatever people think. But well, until that point, I did not even compute that. Like, and then I <laughs> then I meet you. And then you, and then since then, I only have oh reasonable. I'm, I only, I'm, I'm so I bossy. I haven't bought, like, the only time I bought not water, like, if I buy water is, like, I'm, like, I forgot to refill my water bottle or something. I'm outside. I'm like, there's a gas station nearby. And I just grab one, you know, and I'm yeah. really thirsty. That's like the only time, but I've done that maybe like once in the last like three years. Wow. Something. I really yeah. had a big influence on you and yeah. environmental <laughs> awareness. <laughs> yeah, because you shamed me. I was like, wow, it really takes some shaming to change somebody. Um, <laughs> oh my 
my god. The thing is, though, the water fountain in the theater building tasted so bad, though. So yeah, maybe yeah. so. Get, I would I would fill it at right home. Idea. I would fill it at home because I'm not gonna buy water, yeah. but then all the water yeah. is gross. So I would like fill it at home and bring it to school. Um, but yeah. That that's, I totally sidetracked, but I guess I don't know what the point I was telling you that story was. <laughs> Just that I'm a leader. And, I guess so. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm, I'm an influencer. <laughs> I guess it's just reminding me because I, you know, you, you're whether it be writing plays or writing or whatever or what you've learned, you're always constantly thinking this one. You might have been thinking it this one way until you encounter someone like Sam, or you encounter art or whatever. Uh, play new play and you're like oh i'm gonna change gears now like there's something could be shift your gears into another whole new direction they um just i guess i guess okay 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 okay, okay. i guess i know what the rule book uh, what my one of my rules would be is that just be open for change (laughs) open to change oh i love that or something like that um i have to say one of my formative moments in our first year at iowa was watching you watch one of your plays and it was hilarious it was like a hilarious play Mm -hmm. and this was at the trumpet blossom and it was really funny but the thing that was so great about it was how hard you were laughing at your own play and i had (laughs) always thought that was like (laughs) <laughs> like you, you shouldn't laugh at your own work. But then when I saw how much fun and joy you were having laughing at this play you had written, I was like, oh, that's what I want. Like, I want to write something that makes me laugh. So I'm going to emulate that. That's so funny. I don't, I don't really remember that. It was amazing. I was it was just like, I don't remember. Told- you were just like enjoying it so much and like yeah. and and I think you were giving that enjoyment to the actors as well like you were feeding it right back to them so it just became this really fun moment and and I think also like I just I took playwriting so seriously and from watching your work and your humor, I was like, oh, I actually just want to write funny things. <laughs> <laughs> like, have a good time. Have a good time. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe why I laugh so much is like, oftentimes I'm like, just feverishly writing and then like not looking at it at all. And then I'm like, wow, I can't believe like that comes out of my mind. Like, <laughs> like, I can't believe I think like that. Like, I, I'm always amazed. I like, why, like, why do I say such things? And <laughs> But then it's like laugh. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just always so baffled of my mind. Um, but yeah. Wow. All Fun right. memories. Well, so let's go to our final clip, which is from Dr. Lisa Caresimo. Um, This was such a fun interview. She is an assistant professor of theater at Southern Utah University and co-founder and director of Catalyst, a theater think tank. Her work as a performer and composer has been seen recently in the Bay Area at Berkeley Rip, Shotgun Players, and many more. Her theatrical research, which is um, kind of the focus of our interview, um, is has been published in major journals, including Theater Topics and Frontiers, and she's been invited to present her research on voice and gender at the Voice and Speech Teachers Association, Performance Studies International, and the National Conference on Women's Studies. Um, and what, well, this was just a really fun, like interactive 
um, interview. So yeah, enjoy. Um, and so if you if like take a minute where you are and sort of spread your legs out and spread your arms out and let your rib cage take up a lot of space, right? And if you take a really deep breath there and make some sound, as much sound as you can. I know we're on mic, so I don't want to feed back, but go ahead, try it. Just take a big, big breath, make a lot of sound. I'll spread out. Uh. Uh. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So now, crunch up. Like if you're sitting, cross your legs, cross your arms, like over your chest, like bend your head down, take and crawl up into a tiny, tiny, tiny ball, right? And then take a breath and make sound again. I'm really bad. We're not actors. We can't do this without laughing. (laughs) That's okay. That's fine. Laughter is wonderful. Um, So, what what did you feel in the what was the difference in the feeling of like breathing and making sound in those two positions? It was harder to make noise the second time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And what about the breath? Yeah, I felt like I I was like holding a lot in the second yeah, the second time. Right, right. And you could get a really deep breath when you're expanding, mm. right? Right. Yeah. Right. So that that was a really extreme exercise in the moment. But if you think about the permission that the male body is given in our society to take up space and how the value of the female body is almost exclusively based on how little space they take up. Um and you think about how we begin those daily bodily practices, right? As, as, as Judith Butler would, would tell us from a really early age. And if we don't do our gender correctly, we're going to face consequences, right? We're going to get beaten up. We're going to not get jobs. There's like, there's all kinds of consequences for not doing those practices according to your assigned gender correctly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the fact that we're doing that all day, every day, not to that extreme, but the boys are taking up a little more space every day. The girls are taking up a little less space every day. So the boys' rib cages and breasts and voices are getting a little bit bigger every day, every single day, all day long. And the girls' yeah. rib cages and, and vocal instruments and voices are getting smaller every day, all day long. So it's no wonder that by the age of four, we're already hearing those differences, even though there's no biological basis for it. So then, by the time, right? so then by the time you get to adolescence and the boys at that point are, are faced with all kinds of cultural expectations to maintain a deeper voice and to develop that deeper voice, right? That's part of their rite of passage. And so working, I've worked with uh, elementary and middle school choirs And as early as like 10 or 11, boys start trying to claim that they can't sing above the middle Mm. three, like anywhere above there. They're like, oh, no, no, my voice doesn't go that high. Are you sitting at a piano right now? I'm always sitting at a piano. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, amazing. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That was such a delightful surprise when we were doing that interview and all of a sudden she played the piano key. Yeah. Yeah, that was really fun. I I think she was probably she's probably the first uh guest that was like, All right, Sam Sarah, do this. You made us do an exercise? <laughs> I, like, I know, I, I know. Like, oh what the like this is, <laughs> um, 
I okay, I I guess I'll do it. <laughs> Cause I it's not rhetorical or a weird question. Okay, I'll do it. I'm just by, I found myself sitting behind my mic and just like uh 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 <laughs> Yeah. You can tell she's used to teaching students who are who feel awkward <laughs> doing exercises because she was very helpful. Yeah. In coaching us through really fun. Um what do you yeah. felt like you learned from her um, talking about her research? Oh, I, th- my biggest takeaway, I felt like, um, I just, I was just questioning like uh, voices or I was just like, you know, the, that level of manipulation, you know, I was just like, yeah. so, is this my real voice or <laughs> <laughs> voice that, uh, that I had to like form over time. I don't know. I just, I, it was something that really um, opened my mind about. Um, and, oh gosh. So I, now that I'm saying this, so I'm watching the voice, the singing competition. Oh and, yeah. And so it, in the beginning of the, the singing competition, I talked about this last time, but I'll talk about it again. But um, when a singer comes on, all the judges, uh, all the judges have their, um, backs turned so they can't see the singer really in the, beginning, in the, in the blind auditions um all the, the singer comes on the stage and they start oh, singing and they're they're being judged only by solely on their voice no looks or whatever and there's this uh singing there's a music professor he comes on and i think everyone thinks it's a woman because his he uh-huh. there was never a man that reached those hot notes so high and then like so but he, he has such a beautiful voice but then so you see all these judges turn and they're like shocked they're like oh, they're gasping. <laughs> okay, they're like, but like do you really think this is all happening in the moment or is it staged i think so. no i think it's in the moment yeah okay i think so i think so because they re- because their re- reaction like they sometimes they're just like they just so bad like i they all like looking around they're like who who's in on this? Or, I don't know the way, the, the way they just react, and but it just really made me think about um, uh, I don't know expectations and just yeah, and how I think the way we hear people's voices too is shaped by our visual reading of them, and so right. that makes a lot of sense. That like if you just hear somebody's voice without seeing them, yeah, you might have a really different impression. Yeah. yeah, that was really interesting. And listeners, you should definitely listen to the whole interview if you haven't yet, because I I just learned so much about um, the way the voice is shaped by the body. Yeah. So Well, so um, that's our season. Wow. That was our season. What do you I mean, think is like the biggest thing you learned this year oh, from gosh. doing Beckett's Babies? Every week in the middle of a global pandemic <laughs> and, a, and a historical presidential election and like massive cultural upheaval. You know how you ask your guests sometimes on the show, like in one word, how would you describe your work? Or yeah, you know, yeah, or, yeah. And this year, I I have to say, one word is just tumultuous. <laughs> and, Ooh, good word. And I I think about that and. Like it, it, it's so crazy. You know, six of the seven days of the week we were living our lives, you and I, 
And then mm-hmm. every Sunday mm-hmm. we come together and we're just like, we just do this thing <laughs> called Vegas yeah. Babies. Yeah. Which was like the, honestly, like it was the only like anchor grounded thing ever of this year for me. Yeah, me too. Life, the job. Consistency. Yeah, the consistency. And in that, and we're, you know, having the chance to talk to someone and, or when we have our guests on the show, we're talking to them. It was like a nice little escape for a moment of just, oh, let's talk about this other thing or let's get to know you. Um, and, and so I guess my biggest takeaway of the year was just, uh, despite all these like crazy challenges that's happening, um, I think it was really refreshing and really calming at the same time to know that, um, there were other people out there that were all in the same boat. Like we're all feeling mm-hmm. this like, same feeling. It's not just you. And, and we're all having this sense of uh, this like looking forward to-ness of like, let's, we're, you know, despite all these challenges, let's, what can we look forward to? And there's a lot to look forward to when this is hopefully over. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I kind of think of this, weekly ritual as a framework that can hold or a container that can hold like all the things that might happen in the week and all the ideas we're thinking about and mm-hmm. um, artistic possibilities. Like we can just put them every week. We can put them in this container called Beckett's Babies. <laughs> this and just open it. Or maybe it's just that like, because we're a two year old now, we just love routine. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I and I'll say this. I feel like this year year 2 versus year 1 is that we got the routine down. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to feel like we're starting to break rules a little Whoa. bit. <laughs> I kind of find myself like, okay, let's try a little bit of this. I I find myself mm-hmm. you know, after we do a recording, it's like I put this together, like edit the things and I kind of find myself wanting to just do something a little different and like from the previous. And so I'm so glad you brought that up because listeners, we are so excited to bring you some new things in 2021. Some surprises. You should sign up for our newsletter if you are interested. We're gonna put mm-hmm. or we have a sign up link on our website. Anything else we want to give them a little teaser about? Um, no. Sign up for the newsletter. (laughs) All right. I don't want to say too much. Yeah. Just get ready. Get ready. Because year three is going to be crazy. Well, like, hopefully not like in a bad way. No, in a good way. In a a vaccinated way. In a vaccinated way. And year three is, you know, um... We're this is what episode eighty six. We're close to a hundred, so that's gonna happen in year three, and I'm really excited for what's possible. And if you have ideas or suggestions or things you think we should try out on Beckett's Babies, let us know. Mm-hmm. Let us know. All right. 
Is it glisten time? I think it is. <laughs> Our final glisten of the year. Well, you have a really good one, so you go first. Okay, I'll go first. <gasps> All right. <laughs> um, I don't know how seriously I should take dreams, but I'll I will. Um, so my glisten is I had a very creepy maybe pandemic related dream. <laughs> it was pandemic related. Okay. So in my dream, I am back at the theater department building in Iowa and I'm walking around the halls. I'm walking around the lobby and I see a few students just kind of hanging around. And I was like, Hey, do you guys like sketch comedy? Like, do you guys <laughs> like sketch comedy or the comedy in general, which is something you'll be interested in learning. And they're like, yeah, we're down. I was like, okay, cool. Um, you know, I found a classroom. I'm like, we'll be at a different place and I'll meet you guys there and at one o'clock or something like that, like at a certain time. And they're like, yeah, sounds good. So the time comes, we're in this big lecture hall like that holds about 250 students. It's, like, it's one of those big ones. And I see the students, like six, seven students already there. And I'm like getting excited. I'm like trying to talk about sketch comedy. And, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> one by one, students are just coming into this lecture hall. They're like sitting down. Um, they're like too many of them. Like one, yeah. They're just yeah. They're just starting to gather. There's like groups of two or three coming in, finding their seat. Everyone just starts coming in, and now this, what? And we're all like kind of looking around. I'm like I don't think they're supposed to be here. And I was like, hey, are you guys here for a sketch comedy? And they're just like, sure, whatever this is, we're here for it. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. And now this lecture hall is like. It's like a hundred over hundred students. And I'm like, okay, you guys, I'm so sorry. We are in a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> special solo workshop for these group of students. Were they you wearing guys, masks? No masks. And <laughs> oh, they were like wearing like black, just like all like black, just wearing dark clothes. And and then I don't know who the professor, I, I it was like a, a theater department professor or like staff member walking by and he picks his head, pe- peeks his head and is like, Hey, this can't happen. This, we're in a lockdown. You can't have a classroom here right now. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what, why they're here. And, and then he's like, you need to get them out. And I was like, and all, and more students are coming in. I'm like, I'm so sorry. You all have to leave. Please get out. I'm like screaming at my top of my lungs. Cause they're not listening to me. And a group of students are just walking up to me and they're like putting their face up in my face. And oh my they're like saying things. And I was just like, why do we have to go? Like, can we just stay here? The like, coughing and like, just like, <laughs> and they're just, I don't need to like, laugh at your anxiety. <laughs> and I just like try to push them out. And I'm like, get them out and I walk out of the classroom and I see these group of like four or five, I don't know, like they're like wearing this like black cloaks or whatever. They look like these, like they're like, this was a, I don't know what happened, but in my brain, in the moment, in my dream, I was connecting that this is some kind of like pandemic following cult. Like <laughs> pandemics we want to go to sketch comedy classes to have my <laughs> I was like, i think it was like they see oh a classroom oh there's something happening let's make this let's congregate let's make this bigger and let's make this like this is let's it's and like cause an outbreak like yeah cause an outbreak because oh like God. i was just like they it was because they looked like they 
they like worshipped pandemics like they worshiped like they followed pandemics that from the span from the black plague like, that's like the original whatever plagues of pandemics and then like the spanish flu and then they're like seeing this moment as like a sign and that they have to spread and i was just like so disgusted and and i couldn't and i had this dream like three four days ago so i three for three days ago and then i'm just like stuck in my brain this entire time and i was googling after i woke up (laughs) googling like pandemic cult followers or pandemic followers or like pandemic you know worshippers uh, it's okay you don't have to google because i can interpret your dream for you <laughs> i'm pretty oh, sure it means that you um really miss doing sketch comedy and you feel ambivalent about teaching like you think you sometimes think you love teaching and other times it's too overwhelming but you have all this anxiety about doing sketch comedy again or teaching because now you're afraid of people. <laughs> wow. And they were all 20 something year olds. Yeah. You're afraid of college kids. I'm, all, I'm afraid of college kids. Yeah. Ugh. Anyways, that was. You write it down. I, Do you keep a dream journal? No. For a couple of years, I kept a dream journal that I haven't done in a while, but it's so funny to look back on. You just like wake up and you just write what the dream Just was. write down what the dream was, yeah. But you don't dream every night, do you? Um, no, so I wouldn't write it down every night. And I wouldn't even write it down like every time I remembered a dream, but I would write it down every time I had one of those really vivid dreams that like stuck with me for a few hours or a full day. It's just interesting to see what kinds of things are, you know, your mind is playing with. And also I found that writing it down helped me remember. Like if I wrote it down right when I woke up yeah, and I would remember it, but a lot of times I, you know, I can remember a dream right when I wake up and then forget. Mm. So. <sighs> yeah, that was my glisten. That was my creepy cult pandemic dream. <laughs> okay, well, I have a very different kind of glisten which is that i had a raspberry macaron yesterday and it was delicious and that's my whole glisten where was it from it was from i i went for a drive yesterday with Ura and my dog and um i was down in rockland and stopped at this little bakery i think it's called atlantic baking company um and that's where I got it. And I got a latte. And that's my glisten. <laughs> <laughs> Very calming, relaxed glisten yeah. versus my anxiety-driven, uh, crazy dream. Like, <laughs> glisten. <laughs> um, Anxiety-induced. So. I definitely have had plenty of anxiety-induced pandemic dreams. <sighs> What a time. time. Well, you know, when we started this year at Beckett's Babies, we just had no idea what was coming down the pipeline for us this year. I honestly thought, yeah, going in, I was like, oh, just like another year. Okay, let's do this. Let's think of topics. You were really looking forward to your wedding. That was the big thing. on Yes. I was like talking about my wedding almost every week. Yes, I remember. (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, that's, yeah. We were so much, you know, more innocent. Yeah. 
No idea. An election. Oh my god! And then it was also election year, and yeah, right. And it, it was still the Democratic primary. And you know. we're gonna look back at this year, and we're gonna look back at our episodes and be like, "This is." It was like our. It's going to be somebody's uh, primary s- source for. <laughs> You think future historians are going to be like, well, I wonder what Beckett's baby was saying about the pandemic. Well, their experience at this time. They were saying about the election of 2020. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to be a really useful primary source. Yeah. So bookmark us (laughs) (laughs) on your web browser. Um, All right. Well, it has been a very beautiful scary fun anxious remarkable ear and thanks for experiencing it with us listeners yeah. we enjoyed having you along for the ride yeah see you in 2021 whoa <laughs> okay goodbye bye Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening.